Phase the Sixth, The Convert, Part Four. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifty One. At length it was the eve of Old Lady Day, and the agricultural world was in a fever of mobility such as only occurs at that particular date of the year. It is a day of fulfilment. Agreements for outdoor service during the ensuing year, entered into at Candlemas, are to be now carried out. The laborers, or workfolk, as they used to call themselves immemorially till the other word was introduced from without, who wished to remain no longer in old places were removing to the new farms. These annual migrations from farm to farm were on the increase here. When Tessa's mother was a child, the majority of the field folk about Marlet had remained all their lives on one farm, which had been the home also of their fathers and grandfathers. But latterly the desire for yearly removal had risen to a high pitch. With the younger families it was a pleasant excitement which might possibly be an advantage. The Egypt of one family was the land of promise to the family who saw it from a distance, till by residence there it became in turn their Egypt also and so they changed and changed however all the mutations so increasingly discernible in village life did not originate entirely in the agricultural unrest a depopulation was also going on the village had formerly contained side by side with the agricultural laborers an interesting and better informed class ranking distinctly above the former the class to which tessa's father and mother had belonged and including the carpenter, the smith, the shoemaker, the huckster, together with nondescript workers other than farm laborers, a set of people who owed a certain stability of aim and conduct to the fact of their being lifeholders like Tessa's father, or copyholders, or, occasionally, small freeholders. But as the long holdings fell in, they were seldom again let to similar tenants, and were mostly pulled down if not absolutely required by the farmer for his hands. Cottagers who were not directly employed on the land were looked upon with disfavor, and the banishment of some starved the trade of others, who were thus obliged to follow. These families, who had formed the backbone of the village life in the past, who were the depositories of the village traditions, had to seek refuge in the large centers. The process, humorously designated by statisticians as the tendency of the rural population towards the large towns being really the tendency of water to flow uphill when forced by machinery. The cottage accommodation at Marlet having been in this manner considerably curtailed by demolitions, every house which remained standing was required by the agriculturalist for his workpeople. Ever since the occurrence of the event which had cast such a shadow over Tessa's life, the Derby Field family, whose descent was not credited, had been tacitly looked on as one which would have to go when their lease ended, if only in the interests of morality. It was indeed quite true that the household had not been shining examples either of temperance, soberness, or chastity. The father, and even the mother, had got drunk at times, the younger children seldom had gone to church, and the eldest daughter had made queer unions. By some means the village had to be kept pure. So, on this, the first lady day on which the Derby Fields were expellable, the house, being roomy, was required for a carter with a large family, and widow Joan, her daughters Tess and Liza Lou, 
the boy Abraham, and the younger children had to go elsewhere. On the evening preceding their removal it was getting dark betimes by reason of a drizzling rain which blurred the sky. As it was the last night they would spend in the village which had been their home and birthplace, Mrs. Derbyfield, Liza Lou, and Abraham had gone out to bid some friends good-bye, and Tess was keeping house till they should return. She was kneeling in the window-bench, her face close to the casement, where an outer pane of rain-water was sliding down the inner pane of glass. Her eyes rested on the web of a spider, probably starved long ago, which had been mistakenly placed in a corner where no flies ever came, and shivered in the slight draught through the casement. Tess was reflecting on the position of the household in which she perceived her own evil influence. Had she not come, her mother and the children might probably have been allowed to stay on as weekly tenants, but she had been observed almost immediately on her return by some people of scrupulous character and great influence. They had seen her idling in the churchyard, restoring as well as she could, with a little trowel, a baby's obliterated grave. By this means they had found that she was living here again. Her mother was scolded for harbouring her. Sharp retorts had ensued from Joan, who had independently offered to leave at once. She had been taken at her word, and here was the result. "'I ought never to have come home,' said Tess to herself, bitterly. She was so intent upon these thoughts that she hardly at first took note of a man in a white mackintosh whom she saw riding down the street. Possibly it was owing to her face being near to the pane that he saw her so quickly, and directed his horse so close to the cottage front that his hoofs were almost upon the narrow border for plants growing under the wall. It was not till he touched the window with his riding-crop that she observed him. The rain had nearly ceased, and she opened the casement in obedience to his gesture. "'Didn't you see me?' asked D'Urberville. "'I was not attending,' she said. I heard you, I believe, though I fancied it was a carriage and horses. I was in a sort of dream. Ah, you heard the D'Urberville coach, perhaps. You know the legend, I suppose. No, my—somebody was going to tell me at once, but didn't. If you are a genuine D'Urberville, I ought not to tell you either, I suppose. As for me, I'm a sham one, so it doesn't matter. It is rather dismal. It is that this sound of a non-existent coach can only be heard by one of D'Urberville blood, and it is held to be of ill omen to the one who hears it. It has to do with murder committed by one of the family centuries ago. Now you have begun it, finish it. Very well. One of the family is said to have abducted some beautiful woman, who tried to escape from the coach in which he was carrying her off, and in the struggle he killed her, or she killed him, I forget which. Such is one version of the tale. I see that your tubs and buckets are packed. Going away, aren't you? Yes, to-morrow, old lady day. I heard you were, but could hardly believe it. It seems so sudden. Why is it? Father's was the last life on the property, and when that dropped we had no further right to stay, though we might, perhaps, have stayed as weekly tenants, if it had not been for me. What about you? I am not a proper woman. D'Urberville's face flushed. 
what a blasted shame miserable snobs may their dirty souls be burnt to cinders he exclaimed in tones of ironic resentment that's why you are going is it turned out we are not turned out exactly but as they said we should have to go soon it was best to go now everybody was moving because there are better chances where are you going to kingsbeer we have taken rooms there mother is so foolish about father's people that she will go there but your mother's family are not fit for lodgings and in a little hole of a town like that now why not come to my garden-house at trantridge there are hardly any poultry now since my mother's death but there's the house as you know it and the garden it can be whitewashed in a day and your mother can live there quite comfortably and i will put the children to a good school really i ought to do something for you but we have already taken the rooms at kingsbeer she declared and we can wait there wait what for for that nice husband no doubt now look here tess i know what men are and bearing in mind the grounds of your separation i am quite positive he will never make it up with you now though i have been your enemy i am your friend even if you won't believe it come to this cottage of mine we'll get up a regular colony of fowls and your mother can attend to them excellently and the children can go to school tess breathed more and more quickly and at length she said how do i know that you would do all this your views may change and then we should be my mother would be homeless again oh no no i i would guarantee you against such as that in writing if necessary think it over tess shook her head but d'urberville persisted she had seldom seen him so determined he would not take a negative please please just tell your mother he said in emphatic tones it is her business to judge not yours i shall get the house swept out and whitened to-morrow morning and fires lit and it will be dry by the evening so that you can come straight there now mind i shall expect you tess again shook her head her throat swelling with complicated emotion she could not look up at d'urberville i owe you something for the past you know he resumed and you cured me too of that craze so i am glad i would rather you had kept the craze so that you had kept the practice which went with it i am glad of this opportunity of repaying you a little to-morrow i shall expect to hear your mother's goods unloading give me your hand on it now dear beautiful tess with the last sentence he had dropped his voice to a murmur and put his hand in at the half-open casement with stormy eyes she pulled the stay-bar quickly and in doing so caught his arm between the casement and the stone mullion damnation you are very cruel he said snatching out his arm no no i know you didn't do it on purpose well i shall expect you or your mother and children at least i shall not come i have plenty of money she cried where at my father-in-law's if i ask for it if you ask for it 
but you won't tess i know you you will never ask for it you'll starve first with these words he rode off just at the corner of the street he met the man with the paint-pots who asked him if he had deserted the brethren you go to the devil said d'urberville tess remained where she was a long while till a sudden rebellious sense of injustice caused the region of her eyes to swell with the rush of hot tears thither her husband angel clare himself had like others dealt out hard measure to her surely he had she had never before admitted such a thought but he had surely never in her life she could swear it from the bottom of her soul had she ever intended to do wrong yet these hard judgments had come whatever her sins they were not sins of intention but of inadvertence and why should she have been punished so persistently she passionately seized the first piece of paper that came to hand and scribbled the following lines oh why have you treated me so monstrously angel i do not deserve it i have thought it all over carefully and i can never never forgive you you know that i did not intend to wrong you why have you so wronged me you are cruel 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 indeed i will try to forget you it is all injustice i have received at your hands t she watched till the postman passed by ran out to him with her epistle and then again took her listless place inside the window-panes it was just as well to write like that as to write tenderly how could he give way to entreaty the facts had not changed there was no new event to alter his opinion it grew darker the firelight shining over the room the two biggest of the younger children had gone out with their mother the four smallest their ages ranging from three and a half years to eleven all in black frocks were gathered round the hearth babbling their own little subjects tess at length joined them without lighting a candle this is the last night that we shall sleep here dears in the house where we were born she said quickly we ought to think of it oughtn't we they all became silent with the impressibility of their age they were ready to burst into tears at the picture of finality she had conjured up though all the day hitherto they had been rejoicing in the idea of a new place tess changed the subject sing to me dears she said what shall we sing anything you know i don't mind there was a momentary pause it was broken first in one little tentative note then a second voice strengthened it and a third and a fourth chimed in unison with words they had learnt at the sunday school here we suffer grief and pain here we meet to part again in heaven we part no more the four sang on with the phlegmatic passivity of persons who had long ago settled the question and there being no mistake about it felt that further thought was not required with features strained hard to enunciate the syllables they continued to regard the centre of the flickering fire the notes of the youngest straying over into the pauses of the rest tess turned from them and went to the window again darkness had now fallen without but she put her face to the pane as though to peer into the gloom 
it was really to hide her tears. If she could only believe what the children were singing, if she were only sure how different all would now be, how confidently she would leave them to providence and their future kingdom. But in default of that, it behooved her to do something, to be their providence, for to Tess, as to not a few millions of others, there was ghastly satire in the poet's lines. Not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come. To her and her like, birth itself was an ordeal of degrading personal compulsion, whose gratuitousness nothing in the result seemed to justify, and at best could only palliate. In the shades of the wet road she soon discerned her mother with tall Liza Lou and Abraham. Mrs. Durbeyfield's pattens clicked up to the door, and Tess opened it. "'I see the tracks of a horse outside the window,' said Joan. "'Have somebody called?' "'No,' said Tess. The children by the fire looked gravely at her, and one murmured, "'Why, Tess, are the gentleman a horseback?' "'He didn't call,' said Tess. "'He spoke to me in passing.' "'Who was the gentleman?' asked the mother. "'Your husband?' "'No, he'll never, never come,' answered Tess in stony helplessness. "'Then who was it?' "'Oh, you needn't ask. You've seen him before, and so have I.' "'Ah, what did he say?' said Joan curiously. "'I will tell you when we are settled in our lodging at Kingsbury to-morrow, every word.' It was not her husband, she had said. Yet a consciousness that in a physical sense this man alone was her husband seemed to weigh on her more and more. Chapter 52 During the small hours of the next morning, while it was still dark, dwellers near the highways were conscious of a disturbance of their night's rest by rumbling noises, intermittently continuing till daylight. Noises as certain to recur in this particular first week of the month as the voice of the cuckoo in the third week of the same. They were the preliminaries of the general removal, the passing of the empty wagons and teams to fetch the goods of the migrating families, for it was always by the vehicle of the farmer who required his services that the hired man was conveyed to his destination. That this might be accomplished within the day was the explanation of the reverberation occurring so soon after midnight, the aim of the carters being to reach the door of the outgoing households by six o'clock, when the loading of their movables at once began. But to Tess and her mother's household no such anxious farmer sent his team. They were only women, they were not regular labourers, they were not particularly required anywhere. Hence they had to hire a wagon at their own expense, and got nothing sent gratuitously. It was a relief to Tess when she looked out of the window that morning to find that though the weather was windy and lowering, it did not rain, and that the wagon had come. A wet lady day was a spectre which removing families never forgot. Damp furniture, damp bedding, damp clothing accompanied it, and left a train of ills. Her mother, Liza Lou, and Abraham were also awake, but the younger children were let sleep on. The four breakfasted by the thin light, and the house ridding was taken in hand. It proceeded with some cheerfulness, a friendly neighbor or two assisting. 
where the large articles of furniture had been packed in position a circular nest was made of the beds and bedding in which joan durbeyfield and the younger children were to sit through the journey after loading there was a long delay before the horses were brought these having been unharnessed during the ridding but at length about two o'clock the whole was under way the cooking-pot swinging from the axle of the wagon mrs durbeyfield and the family at the top the matron having in her lap to prevent injury to its works the head of the clock which at any exceptional lurch of the wagon struck one or one and a half in hurt tones tess and the next eldest girl walked alongside till they were out of the village they had called on a few neighbors that morning and the previous evening and some came to see them off all wishing them well though in their secret hearts hardly expecting welfare possible to such a family harmless as the derby fields were to all except themselves soon the equipage began to ascend to higher ground and the wind grew keener with the change of level and soil the day being the sixth of april the derby field wagon met many other wagons with families on the summit of the load which was built on a well-nigh unvarying principle as peculiar probably to the rural laborer as the hexagon to the bee the groundwork of the arrangement was the family dresser which with its shining handles and finger marks and domestic evidences thick upon it stood importantly in front over the tails of the shaft horses in its erect and natural position like some ark of the covenant that they were bound to carry reverently some of the households were lively some mournful some were stopping at the doors of wayside inns where in due time the derbyfield menagerie also drew up to bait horses and refresh the travellers during the halt tessa's eyes fell upon a three-pint blue mug which was ascending and descending through the air to and from the feminine section of a household sitting on the summit of a load that had also drawn up at a little distance from the same inn she followed one of the mug's journeys upward and perceived it to be clasped by hands whose owners she well knew tess went towards the wagon marian and is she cried to the girls for it was they sitting with the moving family at whose house they had lodged are you house-ridding to-day like everybody else they were they said it had been too rough a life for them at flintcomb ash and they had come away almost without notice leaving groby to prosecute them if he chose they told tess their destination and tess told them hers marian leant over the load and lowered her voice do you know that gentleman who follows ye you guess who i mean came to ask for ye at flintcomb after you had gone we didn't tell him where you was knowing you wouldn't wish to see him ah but i did see him tess murmured he found me and do he know where you be going i think so husband come back no she bade her acquaintance good-bye for the respective carters had now come out from the inn and the two wagons resumed their journey in opposite directions the vehicle whereon sat marian is and the ploughman's family with whom they had thrown in their lot being brightly painted and drawn by three powerful horses with shining brass ornaments on their harness while the wagon on which mrs durbeyfield and her family rode was a creaking erection that would scarcely bear the weight of a superincumbent load one which had known no paint since it was made and drawn by two horses only 
the contrast well marked the difference between being fetched by a thriving farmer and conveying one's self whither no hirer waited one's coming the distance was great too great for a day's journey and it was with the utmost difficulty that the horses performed it though they had started so early it was quite late in the afternoon when they turned the flank of an eminence which formed part of the upland called greenhill while the horses stood to stale and breathe themselves tess looked around under the hill and just ahead of them was the half-dead townlet of their pilgrimage kingsbeer where lay those ancestors of whom her father had spoken and sung to painfulness kingsbeer the spot of all spots in the world which could be considered the d'urbervilles home since they had resided there for full five hundred years a man could be seen advancing from the outskirts towards them and when he beheld the nature of their wagon load he quickened his steps you be the woman they call mrs durbeyfield i reckon he said to tessa's mother who had descended to walk the remainder of the way she nodded though widow of the late sir john durbeyfield poor nobleman if i cared for my rights and returning to the domain of his forefathers oh well i know nothing about that but if you be mrs durbeyfield i am sent to tell ye that the rooms you wanted be let we didn't know that you was coming till we got your letter this morning when twas too late but no doubt you can get other lodgings somewhere the man had noticed the face of tess which had become ash pale at his intelligence her mother looked hopelessly at fault what shall we do now tess she said bitterly here's a welcome to your ancestors lands however let's try further they moved on into the town and tried with all their might tess remaining with the wagon to take care of the children whilst her mother and liza lou made inquiries at the last return of joan to the vehicle an hour later when her search for a combination had still been fruitless the driver of the wagon said the goods must be unloaded as the horses were half dead and he was bound to return part of the way at least that night very well unload it here said joan recklessly i'll get shelter somewhere the wagon had drawn up under the churchyard wall in a spot screened from view and the driver nothing loth soon hauled down the poor heap of household goods this done she paid him reducing herself to almost her last shilling thereby and he moved off and left them only too glad to get out of further dealings with such a family it was a dry night and he guessed that they would come to no harm tess gazed desperately at the pile of furniture the cold sunlight of this spring evening peered invidiously upon the crocks and kettles upon the bunches of dried herbs shivering in the breeze upon the brass handles of the dresser upon the wicker cradle they had all been rocked in and upon the well-rubbed clock-case all of which gave out the reproachful gleam of indoor articles abandoned to the vicissitudes of a roofless exposure for which they were never made round about were deparked hills and slopes now cut up into little paddocks and the green foundations that showed where the d'urberville mansion once had stood also an outlying stretch of egdon heath that had always belonged to the estate hard by the aisle of the church called d'urberville isle looked on imperturbably 
"'Isn't your family vault your own freehold?' said Tessa's mother, as she returned from a reconnoitre of the church and graveyard. "'Why, of course, tis, and that's where we will camp, girls, till the place of your ancestors finds us a roof. Now, Tess and Liza and Abraham, you help me. We'll make a nest for these children, and then we'll have another look round.' Tess listlessly lent a hand, and in a quarter of an hour the old four-post bedstead was dissociated from the heap of goods, and erected under the south wall of the church, the part of the building known as the Durberville Isle, beneath which the huge vaults lay. Over the tester of the bedstead was a beautiful traceried window, of many lights, its date being the fifteenth century. It was called the Durberville Window, and in the upper part could be discerned heraldic emblems like those on Durberfield's old seal and spoon. Joan drew the curtains round the bed so as to make an excellent tent of it, and put the smaller children inside. "'If it comes to the worst, we can sleep there too for one night,' she said. "'But let us try further on, and get something for the dears to eat.' "'Oh, Tess, what's the use of your playing at marrying gentlemen if it leaves us like this?' Accompanied by Liza Lou and the boy, she again ascended the little lane which secluded the church from the townlet. As soon as they got into the street, they beheld a man on horseback gazing up and down. "'Ah, I'm looking for you,' he said, riding up to them. "'This is indeed a family gathering on the historic spot.' It was Alec d'Urberville. "'Where is Tess?' he asked. Personally, Joan had no liking for Alec. She cursorily signified the direction of the church and went on, D'Urberville saying that he would see them again, in case they should be still unsuccessful in their search for shelter, of which he had just heard. When they were gone, D'Urberville rode to the inn, and shortly after came out on foot. In the interim, Tess, left with the children inside the bedstead, remained talking with them a while till, seeing that no more could be done to make them comfortable just then, she walked about the churchyard, now beginning to be embrowned by the shades of nightfall. The door of the church was unfastened, and she entered it for the first time in her life. Within the window under which the bedstead stood were the tombs of the family, covering in their dates several centuries. They were canopied, altar-shaped, and plain, their carvings being defaced and broken, their brasses torn from the matrices, the rivet-holes remaining like martin-holes in a sand-cliff. Of all the reminders that she had ever received that her people were socially extinct, there was none so forcible as this spoliation. She drew near to a dark stone on which was inscribed, Ostium sepulcri antique familiae d'Urberville. Tess did not read church Latin like a cardinal, but she knew that this was the door of their ancestral sepulchre, and that the tall knights of whom her father had chanted in his cups lay inside. She musingly turned to withdraw, passing near an altar-tomb, the oldest of them all, on which was a recumbent figure. In the dusk she had not noticed it before, and would hardly have noticed it now, but for an odd fancy that the effigy moved. As soon as she drew close to it, she discovered all in a moment that the figure was a living person, and the shock to her sense of not having been alone was so violent 
that she was quite overcome, and sank down nigh to fainting, not, however, till she had recognized Alec d'Urberville in the form. He leapt off the slab and supported her. "'I saw you come in,' he said, smiling, and got up there not to interrupt your meditations. A family gathering, is it not, with these old fellows under us here? Listen. He stamped with his heel heavily on the floor, whereupon there arose a hollow echo from below. That shook them a bit, I'll warrant, he continued, and you thought I was the mere stone reproduction of one of them. But no, the old order changeth. The little finger of the sham d'Urberville can do more for you than the whole dynasty of the real underneath. Now, command me, what shall I do? Go away, she murmured. I will. I'll look for your mother, said he blandly. But in passing her he whispered, Mind this, you'll be civil yet. When he was gone she bent down upon the entrance to the vaults, and said, Why am I on the wrong side of this door? In the meantime Marian and Is Hewitt had journeyed onward with the chattels of the ploughman in the direction of their land of Canaan, the Egypt of some other family who had left it only that morning. But the girls did not for a long time think of where they were going. Their talk was of Angel Clare and Tess, and Tess's persistent lover, whose connection with her previous history they had partly heard and partly guessed ere this. "'Tisn't as though she had never known him afore,' said Marian. "'His having won her once makes all the difference in the world. "'Twould be a thousand pities if he were to tell her away again. "'Mr. Clare can never be anything to us, Is, "'and why should we grudge him to her and not try to mend this quarrel? "'If he could only know what straits she's put to and what's hovering round, "'he might come to take care of his own. "'Could we let him know?' They thought of this all the way to their destination, but the bustle of re-establishment in their new place took up all their attention then. But when they were settled, a month later, they heard of Clare's approaching return, though they had learnt nothing more of Tess. Upon that, agitated anew by their attachment to him, yet honourably disposed to her, Marian uncorked the penny ink-bottle they shared, and a few lines were concocted between the two girls. Honoured, sir, look to your wife, if you do love her as much as she do love you, for she is sore put to by an enemy in the shape of a friend. Sir, there is one near her who ought to be away. A woman should not be tried beyond her strength, and continual dropping will wear away a stone, aye, more, a diamond. From two well-wishers. This was addressed to Angel Clare at the only place they had ever heard him to be connected with, Emminster Vicarage, after which they continued in a mood of emotional exultation at their generosity, which made them sing in hysterical snatches and weep at the same time. End of Phase the Sixth